For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Xi. And I'm Jill Wine Banks. And because this is a special holiday gift episode, we hadn't planned to be on today, but there was such important breaking news that we decided we had to, that I am actually wearing a holiday pin that is a snowman and Brisby sitting next to the snowman. So I hope you all enjoy that as much as our episode. Yes, and like Jill said, if you listened to our last episode, you may have heard us say that we would not be releasing new episodes before the new year. Well, you know, in the spirit of holiday giving, Jill and I are breaking our promise and are recording an emergency podcast of iGen Politics with you because the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling that Trump is disqualified by the clear language of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is so historic that we felt compelled to talk to an expert on this case. And we got the perfect guest to join us today, Noah Bookbinder. He is the president of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, also known as CREW, the group that filed the case in state court in Denver on behalf of six Republican and unaffiliated voters who challenged Trump's listing as a candidate on the 2024 Republican presidential primary ballot and any future ballot. Noah, congratulations to you and your team at CREW for the great briefs you filed, for the compelling arguments and evidence you presented, and the historic outcome of the Colorado Supreme Court case. But I want our audience to know more about you and your impressive background before you came to CREW. You were the chief counsel to the criminal justice section for the United States Judiciary Committee and you were the director of the Office of Legislative and Public Affairs at the United States Sentencing Commission, and you worked as a trial attorney at DOJ's Public Integrity Section. You graduated from Stanford Law School, and you have appeared on virtually every network available, every news outlet, streaming services, et cetera. And we are thrilled that you are joining iGen Politics today on such short notice about such a crucial issue. Welcome to our show. Thank you for being here today, Noah. Uh, well, thanks so much for for having me on. Um, and you know, we we think this is a a big moment for democracy. Uh, and uh, I'm glad to to get into it and really um, you know really jump into uh, what happened and what it all means. Yeah. Well, there is so much to discuss about the decision. But first, walk us through what led um, your organization, CREW, to file the lawsuit to begin with. Where did you spot the 14th Amendment disqualification um, section? Was it the January 6th committee? And and also, how did you find plaintiffs withstanding in this case? Uh, yeah. So actually, it, even before the January 6th committee uh, came into being. Um, I think there was a little bit of discussion sort of out in the ether, but one of our uh, lawyers at Crew um, started focusing on this this much uh, forgotten provision of, of the 14th Amendment and saying, this seems like it could apply here and maybe we should start thinking about how we can use this. Um, and, um, you know, I think in the, in the immediate aftermath of, of January 6th, 
there wasn't necessarily that much focus on using it with uh, regard to Donald Trump, because I don't think anybody imagined that Donald Trump could really come back uh, into the presidency or any other office. There was this, I think, sense almost across the board that um, he was so far over the line and so disgraced that that would never be an issue again. Um, of course, uh, you know, what, what happened has, has, has been normalized over the years. And, you know, that's part of why this is so important. But so we, we started looking at this. Um, I think we felt like the first thing that was important to do was to sort of show proof of concept, show that this was still a, a live and applicable provision of the law. And so we ended up working, uh, in 2022 with, uh, a set of New Mexico voters to uh, bring a, a lawsuit to disqualify from office a guy named Cooey Griffin. He was a, a county commissioner in New Mexico. Uh, he was the founder of a group called Cowboys for Trump, and he was an organizer of the January 6th rally. He recruited people to come. He normalized the violence. He encouraged people on um, and a court did end up disqualifying him and he was removed from office. It was the first time in uh, over 150 years that a court had done that. Um, and, you know, honestly, we would have loved to have brought several more of those kinds of cases to build more of, of a record. But there wasn't time because by that point, Donald Trump was uh, talking about getting back into the presidency. And, and we immediately began, um, you know, looking into that. And one of the key things was that every state sets its own election laws and procedures. And so it was really important to find a state uh, that had the right kinds of procedures. And Colorado actually has a law that allows voters to go to court to say that this candidate is not qualified and so you have to take them off the ballot. Um, and, you know, we were able to, um, to meet a number of you know really incredible Republican and unaffiliated voters in Colorado. Uh, you know, there's a lot. There are a lot of people out there now saying you know this case is a bunch of Washington Democrats going after Donald Trump. Um, but actually, our our plaintiffs are people like Norma Anderson, who was the Republican uh, majority leader of the Colorado State Senate and Colorado State House at different times. Um, it includes uh, Krista Kafer, who is a deeply conservative columnist for the Denver Post, uh, Claudine Schneider, who was a Republican U.S. representative uh, in Rhode Island, but she's been in Colorado for a lot of years. So, you know, these are um, are, are just people who are committed to the Constitution and to trying to, to save our democracy. It's interesting, especially because, first of all, let me start with so many commentators have answered the question, um, well, he could be convicted of a crime and he could still run for president. And most of us, including me, didn't catch, except he doesn't have to be convicted of a crime to be barred because the crime of insurrection is different than insurrection as used in the 14th Amendment. Um, but there were a lot of Republican uh, commentators and scholars who picked up on the 14th Amendment and sort of brought it to the public attention. Did you work with any of them uh, in building your argument? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we, um, it, it, um, it, obviously we were, there, there were folks that we worked directly with. There were folks also whose um, who were on sort of parallel tracks. And, um, you know, so there was the really influential article by professors about and Paulson, uh, which really in some ways launched this into the public consciousness, we were well on our our, our path toward uh, bringing this lawsuit by the time that came out. Uh, and and 
Um, but, uh, you know, we have certainly, um, I guess I don't want to get too far into exactly who has, who has consulted with us. Um, but, uh, you know, there are certainly folks like Judge Ludig, who has, um, you know, who is a revered conservative jurist, um, who has also helped to push the conversation forward and has certainly been you know, influential in, in our thinking um, and, you know, continues to be, I think, influential in, in uh, setting out the, the kind of public discourse on this. Um, you, know, you raise a good point about the, the, we're hearing a lot of people saying, well, but he hasn't been convicted of or even charged with insurrection. And, you know, one thing to note is that um, at, at this point, we're aware of eight uh, people who have been found by courts to be disqualified uh, under the 14th Amendment. Most of them were in the 1860s. One of them was Cooey Griffin last year. Uh, there's not a single one of them who was convicted of or even charged with uh, insurrection or an insurrection-related offense. This is a separate thing. This is not uh, an effort to remove somebody's liberty or send them to prison. This is just about who's qualified uh, to uh, serve in office. And so, you know, it's just as, as you would have a procedure to determine if somebody is in fact 35 years old, which the constitution says you also have to be. Right. Um, here it's, you know, did they incite an insurrection? Obviously the, it, it's more involved because you got you have a lot of facts you need to figure out. And that's why there was a whole lengthy uh, evidentiary hearing with witnesses and, and a whole lot of evidence in this case. Right, and we definitely want to get into that five day trial and make our audience aware of how much went into that. But let's first look at some of the language of section three of the 14th amendment, because I don't think people uh, think of the 14th amendment, they think of uh, equal protection due process, the more well-known parts of it. But um, it reads the part that we're talking about today, Noah, is no person shall hold any office, civil or military under the United States who having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States to support the constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. So that led to one, a number of challenges based on semantics, based on the actual words, who is an officer, who has engaged in insurrection, who took an oath to support and the ridiculous argument that when the president swears to protect and defend, that that's different than support, which to me is maybe the most difficult to pass the red face test in saying it to a court. But talk about the five day trial that happened in the Denver District Court that found that Trump engaged in insurrection, because that obviously is a key point uh, within the meaning of the language of Article uh, of um, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, rather than why it's not a criminal necessary charge. That's right. I mean, it, and certainly there's been a lot of commentary out there of people kind of saying this was arbitrary. It was a court just kind of, you know, deciding whatever it felt like. And it, it couldn't have been less uh, the case. Uh, uh, the uh, trial court judge uh, held an, an evidentiary hearing uh, it was five days of, of testimony, uh, an additional day of, of argument. Um, it included testimony from law enforcement officers, uh, two members of Congress, uh, other government officials, 
Uh, there were organizers of the January 6th rally on, on uh, the mall. There uh, were experts in constitutional history and extremism and the powers of the president. Um, and so, you know, and, and you know, the other thing about it was uh, there was really talented and impressive advocacy on all, all sides. Um, you know, the uh, Donald Trump was was represented by uh, the former Secretary of State of Colorado, and uh, the Colorado Republican Party was represented by one of the leading conservative lawyers in the country and his firm. Um, the you know the plaintiffs were represented not not just by the really fantastic uh, lawyers from Crew, uh, but also by um, uh, former Solicitor General of, of Colorado um, and. Uh, a former um, and the, the um, leading or among the leading Republican and Democratic uh, election law attorneys in the state. Um, and so you had uh, really, uh, you know, the, sort of the, the, the best people arguing this case and nobody was sort of um, subjected to sort of arbitrary procedure. Everybody was there um, asserting their rights. And you know, the, as I mentioned, the lead the lead attorney for for Donald Trump, the former Secretary of State of Colorado, um, might have gotten his, his position wrong a minute ago, but he's the former Secretary of State. Um, and um, you know, so uh, this, in terms of process, um, you know, this was a, a process where um, everything got fleshed out, and that's did what they makes put the in evidence. Did did Donald Trump's representatives present evidence? Did they actually call witnesses? They did. Uh, they brought in actually a good number of witnesses, um, and uh, you know they they, uh, they brought in a member of Congress and an expert and uh, several eyewitnesses. Um, and so, uh, you know, they didn't sit this one out. They were actively litigating, and I think that's what makes the you know the trial court found that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. Um, that was an incredibly powerful finding because it was based on a whole ton of evidence. Uh, and then that was affirmed by the Colorado Supreme Court, which heard, you know, hours of argument, again, by these these top notch lawyers. Right. So uh, going back to um, the Denver District Court, that same trial judge concluded that Trump, like we said, engaged in insurrection, but decided not to disqualify him on the grounds that you'll mention that the president is not an officer of the United States within the meaning of Section 3. And also because um, the presidential oath says that he will protect and defend the Constitution rather than that he will support it, um, which is in the language of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Can you talk about how the Supreme Court in Colorado addressed those two issues and whether there are any other key takeaways you want our audience to um, walk away with um, from the majority opinion? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think the the trial judge did an exceptional job in uh, overseeing uh, this evidentiary hearing and in her really, really lengthy and detailed finding as to why this was an insurrection, why Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. Um, you know, we think on this one point, she was just wrong. Um, and, um, and and I think that the majority opinion uh, does a pretty careful job in, in setting out why. Um, it, it is the, the language of the Constitution, especially taken as a whole, um, is very clear that um, the presidency is an office of the United States. Uh, it's referred to that way no, numerous times. Um, there are a lot of times where the text simply wouldn't make sense if the presidency was not an office. 
Um, and there's there's history of, of the people who, um, you know, who wrote and who um, voted for uh, the 14th Amendment, uh, making clear that that they saw this as applying to all officers up to the very top, including the president. Um, you know, so the, the the you know there are also there are dictionary definitions that that make clear that the pre the president is not just an officer, but kind of what people think of when they think of an officer of the United States. Um, so the the sort of ling linguistic point and the history point is very clear. There's also the kind of logic point of it, it just doesn't make sense that the framers of the 14th Amendment, who were very clear that what they really wanted to do was to protect the country against those who had tried to overthrow it. And if that's what they're trying to do to say, you know, that applies to everyone except for the position that could actually do the most damage, um, just doesn't actually make any logical sense. And so I think when you put together the kind of technical linguistic and historical points with this just, um, you know, what does the whole thing mean? What is it trying to do? Uh, logical way of looking at things. Um, it, it's it's pretty overwhelming. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we think that's really important. Um, and also, you know, I think the other thing that's really important is the court is so strong about um, how clear the evidence was that Donald Trump was directly and purposefully involved in inciting uh, insurrection and that the court you know makes clear that they're not taking any of this casually they understand that finding that a former president of the United States is uh disqualified from office is uh, a, a, is something that's going to have kind of earth-shattering consequences and they made this decision because they felt that the facts and the law were so strong that they had to do it even understanding uh, what a big deal that is. Yeah, I agree that they did a remarkable job in rebutting all the arguments from Trump's side and of going through the history and the logic and the language, which, as I said, I mean, there's some things that, I, you know, I've always had this red face test. Could I say it to a court and not giggle and be embarrassed? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but there was... Um, members of the court who dissented. And George Conway wrote an article in Atlantic in which he says, I always start with the dissents because, um, and in this case, he said, the dissents are so weak that it only strengthened the position of the majority. But is there anything in the dissents that you think are maybe worth noting? Um, and do you think the dissents will in any way influence whether the Supreme Court takes this case and what the outcome will be. I think we always knew um, that it was going to be hard for any court to get to this conclusion. It, it is a, you know, it's something that affects all of American society, and we think it, it does that in a in a very positive way by by enforcing a constitutional protection that's meant to keep our democracy safe. Um, but you know, it was going to be saying that a candidate that millions of people want to vote for. Uh, isn't eligible to to be on the ballot, and we always thought that about that's a hard thing to ask a judge to do. And so the fact that um, some judges couldn't quite get there um, is is not surprising. Um, you know, I think that uh, I, I think the the argument in front of the the Colorado Supreme Court showed that all of these judges were being thoughtful, all of them were being serious, 
Um, I think some of the arguments are, are stronger than others. Uh, you know, there, there's some discussion about um, how it's not fair to do this without a uh, criminal conviction. I think there's there's just absolutely no basis in law or history for, for that point. Um, you know, I think the question of, um, uh, you know, wh whether uh, courts are empowered on their own to consider this uh this this type of challenge um, is is a really central question. It's one that it's hard to imagine that the Supreme Court wouldn't grapple with if it came uh, if it made its way up that way. Um, and I think it's fair to ask that question. We think that the law um, and the history is pretty clear that uh, the 14th Amendment is self-enforcing, that courts can uh, consider it and and enforce it. Um, but, uh, you know, but I think that is that is an area that that I certainly expect uh, will be a subject of of uh, further litigation if it if it if the Supreme, if it does go to the Supreme Court, if the Supreme Court decides to take it. Very interesting. And one of the things that I found interesting about the majority opinion, going back to that, um, is that they quote now Justice Neil Gorsuch from an opinion he wrote while um, he was on the Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, that said a state may, and I'm quoting um, that that section, exclude from the ballot candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office, um, end quote. Do you feel like that was intentional that the Colorado Supreme Court referenced Neil Gorsuch in that opinion? And does that quote indicate how Gorsuch and maybe other conservative justices on the Supreme Court might view this case? Uh, I, I think, it, you know, I, I think it was probably not an accident that they uh, prominently include that that quote. It, it certainly was a decision that you know our legal team felt was powerful when when uh, when we found it. Um, and you know, I, because I think it is uh, it's certainly somebody who's a prominent jurist, but it's also somebody in a very different context, which was not politically charged in the same way. Um, saying that this is clearly something that courts can do, and it's clearly something that courts in Colorado under this set of laws uh, can do. Um, and you know, I think, I, I don't want to predict uh, where Judge Gorsuch or, or anybody else is going to come out, um, but, uh, you know, I, I certainly think the fact that he considered previously um, one of the key issues in this case and ha had a strong and, and well-reasoned view on it um, is something that could well be persuasive if, if, if the issue comes in front of them again. Seems persuasive to me, but um, you mentioned that if the Supreme Court takes the case and upholds it, um, it, of course, the options are they won't take the case at all, and the Colorado Supreme Court decision will remain in force, uh, or that they take it and uphold it, in which case it's the same result. Um, there is also the possibility that they would not uphold it, that they would find for reasons that I can't imagine, but that they would find that it is uh, something that can't be done. Um, and there are political consequences to that. Um, and a lot of people are saying, oh, gosh, this shouldn't have happened because it's going to lead to some kind of uh, civil war within the country if people are denied the right to vote for Donald Trump, uh, who they want to vote for. But, and you've mentioned this already, it is upholding the constitution. It is enforcing our laws. If we are to be a country of a rule of law, 
then we have to enforce our laws and our constitution. And so how do you answer that? Um, and one other part of this question is, if you were Donald Trump's lawyers, would you maybe not appeal this to the Supreme Court? Because right now this is only a Colorado decision. If they appeal it, it becomes a nationwide decision that would bar him and show that he was disqualified in every state. So would they be better off having him disqualified in only one state and not appealing or risking that they will lose in the Supreme Court? It's a great question. I mean, I think uh, as, as to the points you were making, um, you know, Donald Trump's campaign spokesman referred to this lawsuit as un-American. And of course, there is nothing more American, right, than the Constitution. Yeah. And going using our system to make sure that the Constitution is followed seems about as patriotic an American, you know, as you can get. And, you know, I certainly uh, don't know anybody more patriotic than the plaintiffs in this case, who are people who, you know, have literally been uh, censured by the Republican Party that they were, in some cases, been active members of for, for decades. Um, so, you know, just, just I, I think that's a really important point. Um, I also think that, um, obviously, we don't want any any kind of violence in this country, any kind of political violence. Um, we also can't be in a in a situation where we don't follow the law because we're worried about the threat of mob violence uh, by people who have used violence and the threat of violence uh, to advance their own political interests in the past. Like we, we cannot get to the place where that is wielded against the rest of the country to prevent the law from being enforced. Um, as to you know what Donald Trump will do on this, um, you know he, he his team has certainly said. Uh, that they're going to appeal to the Supreme Court. It hasn't happened yet, so we'll see what actually happens. Um, I think it's, it, as you said, it's it's a little bit of a difficult choice because, uh, you know, one option is to just let this lie and say it's only one state. Of course, it's one state whose reasoning, uh, is, that, that, that case would not be a precedent anywhere else, but its reasoning, uh, if allowed to stand, is going to be persuasive, I would think, to decision makers in, in other states. Um, at the same time, you know, if you do appeal, um, you do risk that, you know, if the case is affirmed, then it becomes binding for all the states. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what they do um, and, and we'll take it from there. Any insight into what they're going to do? Uh, you know, I, I, at, at this point, all I can say is that, you know, they, they have said they're going to move quickly to go to the Supreme Court. Um, it is, uh, it, it's hard to imagine this isn't brought to the Supreme Court at some point, because I have to imagine that, you know, uh, if, if it's not in this case, you might start to have decisions in other states, and at some point, uh, it's going to force the issue. Uh, but we'll, we'll see what happens. And there are two states that have ruled to the contrary. Um, are they going to the Supreme Court? So um, the the two states that have ruled to the contrary are, are pretty differently situated. Um, both of those have ruled, I think in one case, fully, in the other case, at least partially, although I think maybe maybe where it stands now fully, on a on the basis of state law, uh, mm -hmm. saying that, um, like, for instance, you know, Minnesota has uh, apparently a clear law that says a party can 
nominate anybody they want, even if that person is not qualified, which strikes me as maybe not the best law, but it appears to be the, the law that, that they have. Um, and because those are state law questions, um, it's not clear that they can go up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, but um, you know, but we'll see what what happens. Uh, Michigan is 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 going in front of the state supreme court now, um, and you know we'll have to see what they do and on what kind of grounds. And and um, you know there may be a, a stronger basis there that we're we're not directly we filed an amicus brief in that case, but we're not directly involved in that case. Um, I think one of the things that is important to note though is that Colorado is the only state that has had an evidentiary hearing and considered the substance of whether Donald Trump um, engaged in insurrection. Even in those cases um, in other states where courts have ruled the other way, none of them have looked at the evidence and said, no, actually Donald Trump didn't engage in insurrection. They've all looked at these sort of preliminary procedural questions of, is this an appropriate thing for a court in this state under uh, under the laws or, or a federal court in, in some instances to consider um, the only state that actually looked at the evidence uh, came out very clearly that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. Very interesting. So in the remaining time that we have left, because I know we have a um, little time, first, can you think of any argument that the Supreme Court could use to justify overturning the Colorado Supreme Court decision? And second, will Crew bring more lawsuits like this around the country? Should there be more? Um, maybe talk about what your next steps are. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the, the our first focus is uh, doing everything we can to see this uh, really important decision upheld. Uh, and so that's the, that, that's the number one thing we're focused on right now. Um, you know, it was interesting where after the trial court ruled, uh, Donald Trump, you know, went out there publicly and said, I won this great victory uh, in court in Colorado. And then he proceeded to uh, appeal that same decision that he claimed as a great victory on 11 different grounds. Uh, we only appealed it on one grounds, which was that 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 issue of, is the president's an officer. Um, and so, you know, if if the Supreme Court wants to go the other way, uh, Donald Trump is going to give them 11 choices of, of arguments they can uh, they can use. Um, we think some of those are not particularly serious arguments. Uh, some of them, I think, are, are uh, and, and you saw this in, in some of the dissents, some of them are, are more serious arguments. We think the law is clear and, um, you know, th that uh, none of those should be a basis to overturn the court, uh, to overturn the decision. Um, but we'll have to see what, um, you know, what, what the court thinks if it gets up there. Well, it certainly is fascinating. I'm wondering, um, one of the reasons crew exists is ethics. And um, sorry, that's my dog. Um, Grisby is joining us um, and represented in today's Joel's pin is there Grisby. Um, but if you have time for just another question sure. on, on ethics, um, because that is really your raison d'etre for um, crew. But did the recently enacted uh, SCOTUS rules uh, have any impact? Are they are they anything at all? And is there any way to force Justice Thomas to recuse in all January 6th cases, including the appeal and the decision whether to accept your appeal um, or, or Trump's appeal, really, since you won Trump's appeal? Um, 
because of his wife's role in January 6th and these very events that will be uh, discussed as part of the evidence that was presented. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've, we've had a lot to say over the past year about Supreme Court ethics, um, you know, both in specific instances and 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 the the fact that until recently, you know, the Supreme Court was kind of the one workplace in America which didn't have a code of conduct. Um, it, um, I actually think that we shouldn't lose sight of what a big deal it was that the Supreme Court put a, a code of ethics into place. Um, you know, we have written about the many ways in which it is uh, it is inadequate and it needs to go further. Um, but this is a court that for many, many, many years essentially said, trust us, we've got this, we don't need uh, a set of rules. Um, and, you know, a, a month or two ago, they acknowledged that actually they should have a set of rules. Um, like everybody else. And that is a sea change. I think it's it's really important. I think it's a credit to all the folks who are out there um, pushing for, for ethics reform. I think it is also a, a credit to the court that they uh, were willing to do that. And so I, I don't think we should minimize what a big deal that is. Um, certainly, there is a, 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 ways, a further ways to go. There are, there are a lot of uh, places where um, it gives tremendous discretion. It's not very specific. Um, I think most significantly, um, there is, as of now, no means of enforcement. Um, I, I, my sense was that, you know, when when the code came out, that John Roberts said that they were involved in a process to think about. Um, uh, I don't think he went as far as, as saying an enforcement mechanism, but you know, some way to get outside advice, uh, outside counsel on this. And you know, so I think there is a door that is open for um, the court to go further in, in having somebody who's not on that court, uh, who can review um, ethics issues and, um, you know, and, and uh, decide what, what the justices should do. And, and certainly we'd, we'd like to see that, but, but I do think, um, this was, it's easy to get into the position of immediately jumping in, in, into all the reasons why this does not cut it. Uh, but I do think it's important to also acknowledge what a big deal this was and, and, and what a huge step it is. Um, you know, on the issue of uh, recusal, I think, you know, because we've certainly made statements in the past about recusal, because we have a, a very specific case that that may be coming coming before the court, and we're going to have to think about what our position is. I probably should should leave it there. Fair enough, and yeah, you fair. have been very generous with your time, and we appreciate all you have done to protect democracy and to make us a country of a rule of law. And we appreciate your being here today. Thank you, Noah. One other question for our audience members, where can um, they find your website and any other future updates regarding this case and potentially other, any other cases? Absolutely. Uh, so we're online at citizensforethics.org. Uh, we are on, uh, I guess it's called X now, the thing that used to be Twitter. Uh, it's at Crew Crew. Um, and uh, we're also now on threads at Citizens for Ethics. 
Um, and we're we're not shy about all the things that we're doing in the world. Um, so you know, please please look us up. Um, and thanks so much for uh, to the two of you for for being out there shining a light on these important issues for the democracy. Thank you. And you are also on both X and um, other social media platforms at Noah Bookbinder, so they can find you. And we will post in our show notes. Uh, you had an article today uh, in MSNBC, yeah. and so we'll put that in, and we'll put in George Conway's from The Atlantic, um, and maybe we'll see what else we post, but uh, we want to keep our audience informed of all these important developments. So it was a special episode today. We weren't planning to take off this week and next week, but uh, then the Colorado Supreme Court ruled and we felt like, oh my God, we have to get someone from crew on this show to talk about what happened because it's a really historic decision. Very important to the country. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you everyone for watching this episode of iGen Politics. We hope that we won't be recording any more emergency episodes before the new year, but if there are any other decisions that are breaking, we might be back. But in the meantime, we hope you will uh, tune in to our next episode after the new year, which will be for sure. Um, we'll be recording with the great Dean Obadella and Max Brooks. Uh, so don't um, forget that. We will uh, be back then. Have a great new year. Have a great holiday season. And be sure to follow us wherever you follow your podcast. Leave us a rating, leave us a review as it helps others find the podcast. And also, if you want to watch us, you can find us at youtube.com slash Politicon. We stream every Wednesday and uh, would love to see you there. And uh, drop a comment or a tweet at um, uh, either Jill or myself and let us know what you think of our episodes and if there are any guests you want to have. Um, thank you all so much for watching or listening, and we will see you after the new year. Happy New Year. Happy holiday season from Brisby and me and my husband, Michael. Oh, love it. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.